second reading is Exodus 19 verses 20 to chapter 20 verse 3. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments are one of the best-known features of the Christian faith. They are read at the start of many communion services. They are a key part of the catechism that we uh, do with people before we confirm them in the faith, along with the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. And we often see them on three boards at the front of churches, especially older churches that haven't been reordered. Uh, It was actually a requirement to have the Ten Commandments boards up at the front of church between 1560 and 1965 uh, under the 82nd canon of the Church of England to display those boards at the front. So it's very appropriate, given how well known they are, how well used they are, how integral they are, that we're going to do a sermon series on the Ten Commandments during the autumn. Uh, Running from now through until mid-November, we'll be looking at one of the commandments every week in our morning services, both at 9.30 and at 11. And as the first in this series, this morning, we're also going to look at the build-up towards the Ten Commandments. So that's why we've included the second part of chapter 19, which is quite an important bit of scene setting for us. So this morning we'll have a look at the two reminders that God gives as a preface, really, to the Ten Commandments. Reminders of his holiness and of his mercy. And then look at the first commandment itself in verse 3 of chapter 20. So just to remind ourselves, firstly, of the setting of the Ten Commandments. Uh, We're probably jumping into the middle of the book of Exodus, which is quite well known. But uh, we'll remember that the Hebrews have been rescued out of Egypt, the Ten plagues were sent upon the land of Egypt and Pharaoh eventually relented and let the Hebrews go. And they have been saved uh, both from 
God's judgment in the Passover, saved from that uh, final plague of the death of the firstborn, and also saved out of the land of Egypt as God brought them out and across the Red Sea. And so now, three months later, after leaving Egypt, they've crossed a bit of the wilderness and they've got to the Mount Sinai. Moses goes up Mount Sinai before the Ten Commandments are given three times uh, during chapter 19 of Exodus. Uh, Once, when God illustrates that the obedience of the Israelites will lead them to be a treasured possession. Another time, when he tells them to prepare for the third day at Mount Sinai, when he's going to speak to them. And then the third and final time, as we saw in our reading today. So it makes sense that uh, we started our reading on the third day, the start of the day when God is going to speak to the Hebrews at Mount Sinai. That's why we start on the morning of the third day. That's the third day after their arrival at Sinai uh, and three months into their travels in the wilderness. And that third day at the mountain was a terrifying day, evidently. God's holiness was very much on display in many ways, not least in the extraordinary events that occurred on the mountain. So we read about thunder and lightning, thick cloud covering the mountain, loud trumpet blasts only get louder and louder and louder, smoke like a furnace covering the mountain, and fire, such that not only in verse 16 did the camp tremble of Israelites, but also, verse 18, the mountain itself, the ground itself, also trembled violently. It's pretty hard to make a mountain tremble there, Uh, big pieces of land, pretty solid. I've personally never been in an earthquake, mercifully. The closest experience I think I've had to anything like an earthquake is being on one of those cross-channel ferries, P&O ferry, um, as it's manoeuvring in and out of port, and it it shakes quite violently, doesn't it, as it's uh, moving around, the big engines get going. Um, Well, if it's uh, bad enough for a small child to experience a, a, fe- a car ferry trembling violently, how much worse must it be to experience a whole mountain trembling violently? And not just for little children, but also for the entire congregation. And added to that, not just violent trembling of the mountain, but also a massive thunderstorm, the biggest thunderstorm you've seen in your life going on at the same time, and deafeningly loud trumpet blasts coming from the heavens, which you've never heard before, and a vast wildfire covering the entire mountain and causing billowing smoke to go up into the thunderstorm above it. So it's kind of like four disasters happening all at once on that particular day. So it's as if the the brass section of the orchestra is completely out of control, if we can call that a disaster. That's a fairly small-scale disaster, but it can sound pretty cacophonous when the brass section goes out of control. But added to that, some more serious disasters, a magnitude 8 earthquake going on beneath your feet, a force 12 storm going on above your head, and a class D wildfire raging around the landscape. Four disasters all at once. Any one of those would be bad enough to uh, make us jump out of our skin. But all at once, it must have been a pretty awesome and terrifying day. And as if that in itself was not warning enough uh, to the Israelites... Moses makes this third trip up the mountain and uh, speaks to God again. God, God speaks to him and warns him to tell the people not to come close to the mountain. Verse 21, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord 
and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses has already been warned of this. So he says in verse 23, he protests, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself have already warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. But the very fact that God is re-emphasizing this point, he's called Moses up for a special uh, briefing on the third day itself, indicates just how important it is that the people do not approach the mountain because God is so holy. God really didn't want the people to come near him. He is making the point that he is separate, he is different. He has power by his nature, he is different. In his perfection, he is different. And in this, God is setting up the pattern of worship that will characterize the nation of Israel for the rest of their life as God's people. Uh, The pattern of worship in the tabernacle with um, the place of God's dwelling being separate, the place of worship with the temple itself, the place of worship being sealed off and separated into a sacred space where only few or a one can go and outer spaces. As for us as Christians reading this, well, we don't have the same limits and the same terror because we have confidence, as the book of Hebrews tells us, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened by his flesh. There are no more forbidden mountains, thankfully for us, no more earthly temples that we cannot enter, that we dread to step into, no more places too holy for us to approach on earth. We have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. And even Mount Sinai itself, we can go on a package tour there now and stay at St. Catherine's Monastery and uh, wander up the mountain and see where this all happens so long ago. It's good to realize this and to remember that we don't need to be worried about entering into particular holy places and that verse in particular we have confidence to enter that's a good one to have in the pocket uh, if you're ever challenged by a, a church warden what do you think you're doing behind the communion rail today oh i'm just having a look and it's uh, i have confidence to enter by the blood of jesus nonetheless god is still holy and the message of his holiness is still one that we need to take with us from this passage It's a point emphasised in the book of Hebrews, which applies what goes on in Mount Sinai to us as Christians today. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire to darkness, gloom and a storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who begged it that heard it begs that no further words be spoken to them because they could not hear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. And well, we can believe it given those disasters that were going on. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it, then, that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? 
At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. We haven't come to an untouchable mountain, uh, off-limits mountain, but we've actually come to a more wonderful mountain. We have come to another holy mountain, certainly, a wonderful mountain called Zion. The new covenant is much better than the old. And in that, it's much more to be obeyed. How much more ought we to not refuse him who calls from heaven? God's holiness at Mount Sinai was very clear. God's holiness at Mount Zion, the heavenly mountain, is even clearer. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. The consequences of refusing God's holiness, the limits he sets at Mount Sinai, were temporal death. He would strike down those who came near. Well, the consequences of refusing his invitation from Zion are much worse. Eternal death, if we don't come to that mountain. Wonderful reminder as we approach the Ten Commandments, God is holy. And also, he is merciful, as we see from the next little bit of the reading, the next preface to the Ten Commandments. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is the defining event of Israel's life with the Lord, their rescue from Egypt. We might think it's a big enough event that they wouldn't forget about it. They've only just recently experienced the ten plagues, God's mighty hand on Egypt, and the Passover leading them um, out from the danger of the death of the firstborn, and then the passage through the sea being divided. That was only three months earlier. But there's a huge capacity, as we read through the history of Israel and God's people, for forgetfulness, for forgetting those things that seem incredibly obvious. So it's an important reminder here, just before God sets out his law, how he wants his people to live, that he reminds them of that great salvation. It's important because it is meant to be a response. Living God's way, living his commandments, must be a response to his mercy, not simply a request for his mercy. And we ourselves, like Israel, need to have that in the right order. Salvation first, and then the laws to live by. Not laws to live by, which if we cross every T and dot every I, then God will provide salvation. No, he has brought rescue from Egypt first. He reminds them he's already brought them out of the land of slavery. And now... From grateful hearts, from glad worship of him, he desires obedience. This is if an orphaned child is adopted into the royal family from the most awful of slums in the most forgotten part of the country. And they're told, you've been brought in. You've been uh, given this wonderful gift. Now, please say your pleases and thank yous. Don't dirty the carpets. And do your homework. Entirely reasonable requests, having been brought in to the royal family. It's quite different, isn't it, to being told, that child being told, while they're still in the state of desperation, 
say all your pleases and thank yous, keep all your carpets clean, do your homework, and then we'll think about, if you've done all that perfectly, adopting you in the future. It's a totally different dynamic. And it produces a completely different mindset for us. If we were anxious about earning God's favour, then it would have an entirely different effect on our Christian lives. Christian life is the grateful life. We have been forgiven, redeemed, adopted, given Jesus' own righteousness in our hearts. We have been rescued already, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And like those Israelites, we can so easily, so quickly forget that as we live our day-to-day lives. By contrast, we have to hold that before us daily, remind ourselves daily of the grace that we have been shown, the wonderful gift we have already been given, and free ourselves from the mindset of earning God's favour, of earning his forgiveness. Christian life is not that sort of anxious, worried toil. Instead, it should be joyful thanksgiving. That's, in fact, the order that we read throughout the New Testament where the gospel is set out first, followed by the requirements uh, that we live in God's way once we've become Christians, most famously in Romans chapter 12. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what he's already given, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Mercy first, sacrifice as grateful response. For non-Christians, however, it's a slightly different application, isn't it? There's a danger of expecting those who don't know Jesus to live the Christian life without knowing that mercy, without knowing that prior forgiveness, which is incredibly hard. If you don't know gratitude for what you've been given, then you have little motivation to follow Jesus and walk in his way. Christian morality may still be the right way to live, the best way to live, because it's been given by the creator who knows exactly how we ought to live. But we can't expect those who live in Babylon to behave as if they live in Jerusalem. The most important thing for those who do dwell in Babylon, who don't know the Lord, that is, is not to be given morality, to be given laws by which they should live, Important though that is, the most important thing for them is to be given Jesus himself, the gospel of free grace and liberation in his name. Only then will the real transformation take place as the Spirit comes to live in them and changes their hearts. That's the dilemma, actually, that I was faced with about 10 years ago when I was asked to sign various petitions about the government's plans to change the marriage laws. Do I try to join with these people who are seeking to maintain a Christian way of life on a largely non-Christian nation, even though that's actually the right way to live? Or do instead, I say, actually, we need to most importantly present Jesus and then allow that transformation to dictate how people live? It was a difficult one to wrestle with. In the end, I did sign the petition, um, but I was conscious of conflicting opinions on that particular issue of whether we should do that. 
So God is holy. He's reminded us through the, the mountain and the limits. God is merciful. He's brought us out of slavery already. And so we come to the Ten Commandments themselves, how he wants us to live in light of his holiness and his mercy. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one, no other gods before me. It's been noted by Bible scholars, even those who are sceptical and come from an atheist or agnostic point of view, that there is a radical monotheism throughout the Bible, a radical belief in one God, in contrast to so many other scriptures of the ancient world which presents a multitude of deities, a pantheon. There is a radical monotheism in the Old Testament. And that was contrary also to the polytheism that Israel knew from Egypt, from their days of seeing statues and processions and temples throughout the land of Egypt from which they'd been rescued. And God doesn't just want a a new pantheon where he's simply the head God and he allows other gods. When he says, you shall have no other gods before me, that's in the sense of in my presence, before me in my presence, as you stand in my courts, not simply you shall have no other gods ahead of me, but you can have some behind me. Sinai, in a sense, was a courtroom with God himself descending, as we read, in fire, like the judge coming to sit on the judge's seat. And the first rule, the first commandment of that court is no competing gods, no gods before me in my presence. No harbouring of belief in Baal at the back of court. No hiding of an ashtoreth under the seat. No other gods before me in my presence. Jesus himself is holding court and he has an exclusive environment. God has fully revealed himself in the face of Jesus. The God who said, no other gods before me, speaks those words in Christ. Many people have nonetheless attempted to combine Jesus with other gods, which we call as Christians syncretism, joining Jesus together with something else, whether that might be Jesus plus voodoo in the Caribbean, or Jesus plus animism in parts of South America, or Jesus plus ancestor worship in Africa. Christian arithmetic is that addition is actually subtraction. If we add to Jesus in any such way, whether so obvious or less obvious, actually we take away from him. Jesus is totally sufficient to provide the salvation out of the land of sin, totally sufficient to tell us how we ought to live as God's redeemed people. So to add to him other deities, other belief systems, and think they're supplementing Jesus in some way, is actually to deny Jesus's sufficiency. As I say, the gods that we attempt to add on to Jesus might be less overt, the gods we try to sneak into his courtroom, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, might be less obvious. There are several secular materialist gods that we are prone to having our hearts wander after, and secular materialism being, it seems, the dominant alternative religion for us in our day. It's wonderful to have comfort at home, 
But what about when we try to add the God of comfort to Jesus? Well, that certainly could be challenged in the coming months. It's wonderful to have success at school, at work, in a career. But what about when we make the success a God and put it alongside Jesus, Jesus plus success? What about when Jesus gets in the way of that success? It's wonderful to have a diverse and uh, racially diverse and um, uh, diverse in other ways society and workplaces. But what about when diversity gets abstracted and put up as a God alongside Christ? Certainly the amount of diversity training and diversity officers and diversity policies might lead one to think that our current society does worship diversity above Jesus. There's all sorts of good things that can be abstracted and taken to be gods alongside Jesus, whether it's experience um, or material goods. But Jesus commands, you shall have no other gods before me. Will Jesus have the first place in our hearts, the place of worship in this new year? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much and praise you for salvation out of sin, for rescue from that old life. Thank you for redeeming us by Jesus' blood. Help us who know him to live his way, to serve him fully, to give all of our hearts to him, to hold nothing back, to harbour no other gods in his presence. Help us, Heavenly Father, as we follow these Ten Commandments through the next couple of months, to refine our understanding and to refine our hearts in light of them. In Jesus' name, amen.